Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this uh, second Sunday in Lent, we see a consistent theme in each of the lessons, which is this. Basically, trust in God. Trust requires that we believe in God, and specifically, that we believe the content of his word. In other words, the faith. That's what we as Christians confess. The faith. Sounds exclusive, so I don't know. Some people might be offended by that, as though there aren't other faiths. There are not. There is one faith. It's the Christian faith. That is the faith that saves. And it's not this nebulous faith of our generation. We have so many people that describe themselves, for example, as, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And they also tend to speak of faith as this sort of flimsy, nebulous idea. Not something that's clearly, objectively taught, as though there is an orthodox faith that is objectively true. That is, in fact, offensive to some people. Well, that's what the faith is. It's objective truth. The way this word faith is misdefined in our culture makes it out to be something that simply helps us to get through life, you know, get through the difficult times. But then when God says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, this objective word of truth is not received as such. In fact, these words sort of all on deaf ears sometimes in our culture because people think of faith as, like I said, this sort of flimsy, nebulous idea of like belief in something for some unknown reason. But that's never the way our faith is described. The faith is objective and true. Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross for your sins. Real person in real history. Think about our creed. We name Pontius Pilate a relatively apart from Christ and him presiding over that trial, a relatively insignificant person in the annals of history, as governor of some Roman outpost in Jerusalem. But we actually name him in our creed that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why? Because it's an objective faith. It's based on objective truth. So it's not this flimsy, nebulous idea. It's an objective word. There are a number of pithy type sounding sayings that get thrown out there about, you know, that sort of sound religious about faith. And, but there's no content to them. And that's not, that's not the faith. Um, I want to start with the Old Testament lesson where God spoke a word of promise to Abraham. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And God later elaborated to him, saying, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Abram heard this word of promise, and he believed it. He believed the content of what God spoke to him. And God's word teaches us that in this 
that in this belief of the promise that God made to Abram, he was actually made righteous. We heard from Romans 4 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram did not live a sinless life by which he earned righteousness. To the contrary, his sins are on display in the words of Scripture. Uh, In our lesson this morning uh, from Genesis 12, if you keep reading where our lesson stopped, immediately following that passage, you read on, you'll see that there was a famine in the land and Abram went to Egypt. Because he was afraid that they would kill him in order to take Sarai for themselves, he had Sarai lie and withhold the fact that she was his wife. Oh, tell them you're my sister. That way they'll deal kindly with me. So um, God, as a result, God struck the Egyptians with great plagues because they did They didn't realize that Sarai was his wife. Pharaoh actually took Sarai as his wife. So God struck them with great plagues. Never mind that Pharaoh acted in ignorance, whereas Abraham and Sarai acted duplicitously to lie. Yet it was Pharaoh and the Egyptians who were plagued. And he ended up telling Abram and Sarah, go, get out of here. Pharaoh acted in ignorance while Abram acted duplicitously. But the point I'm making is that Abram was not guiltless. He wasn't guiltless in this, but nevertheless, the Egyptians were the ones that were smitten by God. And God shows here, it's remarkable, he just shows his immediate fulfillment. Of course, his fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abram would come over the course of time. But right here is an immediate fulfillment of that promise when he said, him who dishonors you, I will curse. Because he did, he cursed him right then and there. But even in the face, this is the point, is that even in the face of Abram's wavering and his unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. Even in the midst of his being unfaithful or wavering, Abram's, God remained faithful to Abram. This theme has continued in the Psalms where the psalmist declares from what we read responsibly this morning, Psalm 121, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's, our, that's who we rely on. It's God. Where's my help come from? It comes from God, the creator who made heaven and earth. And as I said earlier, we believe not merely in God as though this is some nebulous idea or some notion but we we believe the content of his word specifically. We believe his word of promise. Specifically, we believe his word of promise. Recall that Jesus encountered a demon-possessed man, uh, two demon-possessed men, uh, who said to him, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That was from Matthew 8. But you'll notice in that exchange that the demons believed that he was Jesus, that Jesus was the son of God. But see, that's not a saving faith. They believed that he was the son of God. But that was not a faith that saves them. Saving faith believes not only that Jesus is the son of God, 
but that in him you have salvation. Saving faith is the one that turns and says, have mercy on me, a sinner, and receives the promise of God, which is God saying, I forgive you of your sins. I have mercy on you. I give you my body and blood to forgive you of your sins. I wash you clean in baptism. You are free from sin. Faith is what clings to that promise. That's saving faith. And in summary, that's the issue that we see in the person of Nicodemus. Brings us to our gospel lesson. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now, is this a confession of the faith? Is Nicodemus confessing the faith? He expressed that uh, uh, Jesus came from God, that he was a teacher who was uh, come from God, confesses that God was with him, But, you know, many people today confess that Jesus was a, a, a good teacher, they'll say, sort of a morality teacher. I'm thinking of, of uh, the quote that's attributed to Gandhi that was uh, something to the effect of, I love Jesus, just not, just not, I love Christ, just not the Christians. As though Jesus was a moral teacher that showed us how to live morally, and if only we could follow Jesus, the moral teacher. But some people confess that about Jesus. They say he was a good moral teacher. Uh, remember those bracelets? Did any of you ever have a bracelet that, that said WWJD? What would Jesus do? It was popular years ago. Uh, what would Jesus do? You know, that's, that's what we should be thinking about. And I think that they were well-intentioned. But uh, the faith that we proclaim is not that Jesus was a new Moses who gave us a new law to follow. So the question isn't, what would Jesus do? The question is, what did Jesus do? Uh, it's along the lines of what we talked about last week, that Jesus, in, in withstanding the temptation of Satan, was not merely giving us an example of how to withstand temptation. He was actually doing it. He was actually fulfilling that for you. Because you will succumb to temptation, but Jesus will not. So his perfect righteousness is the righteousness that we need. The righteousness that doesn't succumb to the temptation of Satan. That's what Jesus was doing. He was actually doing it. So the question isn't what would Jesus do, is what did Jesus do? But as a Pharisee, Nicodemus has lived a life under the law. And he's striven to meet the rigorous demands of the law. In his remark to Jesus, which is actually technically not even a question, did you all notice that as we read the gospel lesson? He didn't actually ask him a question. He just made a remark. Nicodemus seems to be confessing that he has some sort of faith in Jesus. He believes something about Jesus, and it's challenging him. But he doesn't know exactly what that is. And he expresses doubt in, in his statement. Jesus saw that question, you know. And, and I, I'm referring to him saying that we know that you are a teacher come from God. 
See, he's expressing something. But he doesn't actually ask a question. But Jesus sees in this expression, he sees a confusion and a question that lies underneath this. So Jesus sees that, and that's why he answers it and says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, just a side note about being born again. You'll see a footnote in some of the Bibles. It'll, it'll have a little footnote that says it could also mean born from above. And it does. It has this dual meaning. Intentionally so. Because to be born again means to be born from above. And it's both. You, you have your physical birth and then you have your spiritual birth. And to be born again is to have a spiritual birth that's distinct from your physical birth. And what kind of birth is that? It's the birth that comes from above. So it is, it is both. <clears throat> it means to be born again and to be born from above, to be given the new life that comes through faith. That is the real and true faith, the belief that clings to Jesus Christ and his shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins. So Nicodemus questions, his questions expose his lack of faith. He even says, how can these things be? So Jesus is basically saying, you don't even know what you don't know. Like, it's not that you don't know, it's that you don't even know the things that you don't know. You're, you, uh, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus was conflicted. The Pharisees piously held to a system by which they reached God, or so they thought. It was a legalistic system, and they clung to it. John the Baptist, meanwhile, was upsetting that system. And Jesus comes along, and what did he do? He confirmed the ministry of John the Baptist. And yet, Nicodemus could see that Jesus was, as he said, from God. So he is conflicted about this. By the way, when Jesus answers and says, we, we see, we, and uses that word, we, he's talking about he and John the Baptist. He's, he's conflating their, their ministry together because they were ministering together. They were sharing the same message. And so he was speaking of them both. But, John, but, but Jesus and John the Baptist were upsetting this system. And yet Nicodemus could see, you're obviously from God. So now I am presented, I'm Nicodemus, I'm presented with a dichotomy and I don't know how to fit these things together. I know you're from God, but you're not following our piously developed system of legal ladder climbing to God. So how do I reconcile these things? What he did not see at this point was that Jesus was the true Israel. He was a teacher of Israel, yet he did not recognize the true Israel that was before his very eyes. It's quite an irony. He didn't recognize that Jesus was much more than a prophet of God. And that's what he's saying when he says, we know that you are of God. He's, he's saying like you're a prophet, like the prophets of old, which is to miss that Jesus is much more than a prophet because he's not simply proclaiming the one that is to come. He is the one that is to come. He is the one that all the prophets have borne witness to. And here he is right before Nicodemus. And Nicodemus can't see that. It's like he's got this, you know, he's got this, 
fog in front of his eyes and he can't see clearly that this is the Christ. Now, in Numbers 21, you can read about the bronze serpent, which is probably familiar to most of you. In summary, while wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites again were groaning about their situation. You you have to quote from Numbers 21 when you talk about the Israelites groaning. We, this is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Can you imagine? We loathe this worthless food. They're referring to the manna from heaven that God gave them to eat in the wilderness. And now they have said, worthless food. So God sent fiery serpents among them, which bit them, and they were dying. Anyone that got bit, boom, they were dead. Then all of a sudden their tone changed. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Okay, well, I shouldn't mock and ridicule them. I mean, we we also loathe this worthless food that God gives us. I mean, we we do. In our sinful nature, we, we, we constantly are turning away from the blessings he gives and saying this isn't good enough for us. But with a contrite heart, we come back to God and we say, Lord, remove that from me. Help me to be thankful for the things that you give to me. God, who is faithful to the Israelites and who is faithful and loving and forgiving, instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and to set it on a pole. And then he gave a promise. God's promise was that anyone who was bit by a fiery serpent could look at the bronze serpent and they would live. There's another Biblical account from the Old Testament that just violates our modern sensibilities because we think, okay, I get bit by a snake, I look at a bronze serpent and that saves me. That's stupid. I mean, seriously, like how could that be? That just doesn't make any sense. It's kind of like the foolishness of the cross. I'm saved because Jesus died on a cross. And yet, of course, because these things are not, they're spiritually discerned. And so it might appear to the world as folly, How about this sacrament we receive? Christ's true body and blood? How can that be? Well, when the word of God says it, guess what? There you have it. That is it. So God makes this promise, kind of like washing a little baby with water in the word. And does that do something? Yeah. Just like looking at the bronze serpent does something. Yes. Because it, it, it believes the promise of God. It's not, it's not that the bronze serpent like shot lasers out that magically inoculated the person from the, from the snake bite. It's that looking at the bronze serpent was done in faith. That, that was their faith. They're believing the promise that God made to them. And that's what saving faith is. And that's what Nicodemus is not understanding. Friends, you've been bitten by a fiery serpent. And that serpent is called sin, death, and the devil. 
All people have been bitten by the serpent. This is a, a plague that infects the entirety of our world, past, present, and future. Since Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, this plague has infected all people. They have been bitten by that serpent. And we have a bronze serpent that we look on and it gives us life. And not just life like the Israelites had because they lived to see another day, but it gives us eternal life. That is the saving faith, looking upon that bronze serpent. But what Jesus is saying is when he said that compared the, the bronze serpent to the son of man being lifted up, he's talking about the cross. And he's saying that just like in the wilderness, when they looked on the bronze serpent and they were saved from the snake bite, for us who have been bitten by the fiery serpent, when we look on the cross and we see that Jesus suffered and died on the cross for your sins, you receive the forgiveness that, that, that works faith in you, that gives you eternal life. That is the saving faith. That's the faith that saves us all. And then this is captured and succinctly presented in uh, the end of our gospel lesson, which is familiar words to everyone from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe in him means to receive the word of promise with faith. Just, just like that bronze serpent, they received a word of promise with faith. When you look on the cross and you receive that word of promise that his suffering and death was for your sins, that's saving faith. Jesus died for you. In him, you have forgiveness. You have reconciliation with God the Father. This is not your works. It's not keeping of the law but it's receiving the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So on this second Sunday in Advent, hear that promise, hold to that promise, and know that God in Christ is holding on to you. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.